Well, hi there. Let me give you an update on where we are with our location change and all the things that are happening uh, regarding the move of our church to, uh, really, it's the first uh, off-ramp on Monterey Oaks. It actually, you go north of 290, it's called Industrial Oaks, and it's at a beautiful location there. Uh, it's actually, the commercial property is called Monterey Oaks uh, itself. That's what the building's called. And so we're excited about that. It's coming. We're ready, getting ready to move into that building. We're making preparations. But um, we've had some bumps in the road. And so uh, the 16th does not look like it's going to be the date that we move into that building. Everybody say, oh, yeah, which is a bummer, but uh, what's happening is we just have run into a few little snags with permitting and things like that, but it's a, it's a process. We got to go through it. We got to m- make it right. I'm committed to everything being right, being legal, being safe. Uh, it's a really important thing for our church to obey the laws of our city. Amen. Amen. So uh, I really believe in that. So we're, we're figuring out ways to make sure that that happens, but it's delaying us a little bit. And so um, they're improving the space right now. They're working on it. Uh, and, and that means probably uh, two weeks, maybe three weeks, but really we don't know the exact date yet, which is a bummer. I'd, I'd hope to have known it by now, but as soon as I know it, you will know it. <laughs> and uh, so up, up until we move into that facility, um, we will most likely continue to meet here. We can meet here as long as we need to. Um, we, the only issue will be that uh, we have to move into another theater and, and shrink down um, the number of theaters that we use on a Sunday. And so that's coming uh, on the 16th itself. And so uh, today's the 2nd, next week's the 9th. We'll kind of have everything as normal. And then if we're here on the 16th, we will be meeting in theaters three, four, and five, all right? And so uh, we're going to squeeze in and be really a close-knit family. I'm really getting excited about this space. It's going to be so wonderful. It is so beautiful. If you haven't seen it, you're going to be really overwhelmed by the, the lobby area. We can stay in the lobby as long as we want and talk as long as we want all day long. In fact, I might just have church in that lobby someday. I don't know. It's just... So it's a beautiful, beautiful thing, all right? So are you ready to study the scripture? Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. And then I want you to leave your finger there, and we're going to start in Acts 16. So Philippians 4, I want you to put your finger there, and then go over to Acts 16. So we'll start with Acts 16, and then we'll go to Philippians 4, all right? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the scriptures and how they give us insight, revelation, illumination of our minds, the uh, transformation of our hearts. Father, I pray that as we read it together, as we discuss it, as we share it, that you would change us. Help us to see things from a new perspective today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We are starting a new series today. And it is on the book of Philippians. Philippians. And so we're going to study this book. We're going to do an overview of this book. We're going to get the, the real truths out of this particular letter that was written by the Apostle Paul. And we're going to learn how to live in our culture and in our time by what he was teaching the Philippian church. And so uh, I want to begin by just 
describing for you a little backdrop of what this book is about. And today we're going to kind of talk about the overview of the book, and each week we'll kind of go through each chapter and uh, share it together. And so uh, think about it, 20 centuries ago, 20 centuries, all right, an itinerant tent maker was tossed into prison for creating a disturbance in the city of Philippi. Now, there he spent considerable time uh, dictating a letter that uh, would, would take up about 12 sheets of scratchy paper um, that he was writing to some believers. Today, few people would recognize the emperor that was in charge at that time. You've probably heard him in a history lesson. His name was Nero. Nero. All of the writings of Nero are gone. He was actually quite a prolific writer. But all of his writings have disappeared. They weren't kept. On the other hand, this tent maker sitting in jail wrote some letters. One of those letters was the book of Philippians. This um, Apostle Paul wrote some letters that have been transcribed numerous, numerous times, have copies, millions of copies all around the world. We all know him as Apostle Paul. He was writing to a group of Christians in the city of Philippi. This church of Philippi was founded with um, with a, some believers that Paul ministered to on his first missionary journey. Um, Philippi was a Roman colony. It reflected Roman culture, uh, Roman secularism, um, and aesthetics. Philippi became the base of Paul's missionary journey based on God's direction. Um, and we're going to read that right now in Acts 16. I want you to see where this group of people came from and how they materialized um, because this is quite a unique book within the New Testament. It is a book of affection, of gratitude, of joy. It's a book where the Apostle Paul loves these people so much that he's sharing his affections with them. And so let's read in Acts chapter 16, verse 6. We'll read it together. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. And when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they wanted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus, the Scripture says, would not allow them to as they, as they tried. It's funny. They were trying to follow the Spirit of God to share the message. They tried to go one way, and then God redirected them. God redirected them. He had a better perspective on what they needed to do than they did. That's going to come into play in a bit. Verse 7. When they came to the border of... Oh, sorry. Uh, we already read that. Came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready to at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. 
They were trying to go one direction. God had another direction for them. When it says we, what the we that they're talking about there is Luke, who is writing Acts, Dr. Luke, and then there was Silas, and there was Timothy, and they all went together to this colony, this Roman colony of Philippi. It's a fun word to know and say. Philip, hi. Philip, hi. And so this is, this is where they begin this process where they meet some people. There are, there are no, um, there seems to be no synagogues in this city. Biblical scholars think that possibly the reason that the Apostle Paul had to meet in the next passage, next little passage here, the reason he had to meet with Lydia on the outskirts of town at a place of prayer is because there was no synagogue meeting. This, the, everything was so secular, everything was so consumed with Roman culture that Jewish culture hadn't taken hold within this city. And so instead of Paul's practice was that he would go to the synagogue. Wherever he would travel, he would start at the synagogue. He would start with his brothers and his sisters, his Jewish brothers and sisters that he knew well and they knew history together. He would begin to tell them about the revelation of Jesus Christ. He would tell them about the Messiah who had been prophesied and who had come and given his life. And that's the typical way that the Apostle Paul would start in a city. He doesn't start that way in this city. He actually has to find a place where there are some people who just are worshiping God. So the implication is that they are probably Jewish people, but they haven't yet understood who Jesus is. And listen, by the way, this is exactly what we're called to do. We're called to go into our city, and there are many, many people who are religious or they're spiritual. In fact, in fact, in Austin, there are a lot of people who love spirituality. They love to talk about spiritual things, but they don't know about Jesus. They don't know about the life giver. They don't know about the one who is the bread of life that comes down from heaven, that fills their lives and forgives their sins and heals their hearts. We have to be the ones who will carry that. And so we want to share that with them. So let's continue reading because we'll get a picture of who these believers are that are in Philippi. Verse 11 says, From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for uh, Samothrace and the next day to Neapolis. From there they traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there for several days. Verse 13, On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message, and when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. This happened many, many times in the life journeys of the Apostle Paul. He would go to a place and find some believers there and they would take him in. It was really part of the cultural distinctiveness of those missionary journeys. But he found these, these, these folks out here and they, he shared the gospel with them. He shared the good news of Jesus and then she invited them to her house. Continue to read here, verse 16. Once, we, when we were going to the place of prayer, 
we were met by a slave girl. So they're still going to this place of prayer. They're met by a slave girl and had a, who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Can you say uh, awkward? you got to get the picture. They're going around, they're doing ministry, they're talking to people, and they got this woman who is following them around. These people, these men, you need to listen to them. They're servants of the Most High God, and they're telling you the way to be saved. I just think you have to read the Bible for what it really says. You can't just read it like your holy glasses and you're reading it. Oh, there was a demon-possessed woman following them around. Okay, demon-possessed. She was weird. She was under the direction and influence of another spirit. Not the Holy Spirit, but a different spirit. And let me just stop right here and say that it is important for all of us to understand that Jesus has authority over every spirit that exists on the earth today. There is an enemy of our souls. There are demonic entities. It is a fact of life. There is a spiritual world that people know about. They, they dabble in. All you got to do is watch some of the movies that are coming out, TV shows. I mean, people are settled. There's a spiritual world, all right? We all get it. Some people think that they, they refuse to believe it, but I think it is real. I think most people understand that it is real. But here's what you have to understand as a Christian. As a Christian, you have to understand that Jesus has authority, and he's given you authority. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't care how much you know. Knowing information is not the key to spiritual power. Okay, it's not just information. What we're talking about is transformation. When Jesus comes into a person's life and transforms them, makes them into a new creation, forgives all their sins, washes away all their past, and then gives them authority. Any run-of-the-mill Christian can cast out a demon. Any person can help, help someone rid themselves of a spirit who is influencing them. Now, I'm not talking, it doesn't matter if I'm talking about being possessed or oppressed or depressed or whatever it is. I'm not, it doesn't, that doesn't really matter. What the NIV uses in this uh, case is they use the phrase demonized, demonized, which means under the influence of a demon. And so, so the Apostle Paul here begins to exercise this spiritual power. Let's read it. He says, verse 18, she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. I don't know if Paul was figuring it out, that she was uh, under the influence of, of some spirit, or if he knew that there was a process going on in her as she walked around with them and saw people being ministered to. I don't know why he waited all those days, but finally the scripture says he got sick of hearing this lady and said, that's it, it's over, you got to get out, and the spirit left her. So now we've got Lydia, everybody say Lydia. A really uh, wonderful lady who was doing business in the community. Okay, she was a business owner. And so he, her and her whole family were baptized. And then we have this woman who the, most likely uh, who the spirit was cast out of. And she becomes part of the community. And then as a result of this spiritual power that Paul is beginning to demonstrate in the city, it has repercussions. Repercussions. Another fun word to know and say. Say it together. 
Repercussions. Yeah, repercussions. Verse 19. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. That tells you how steeped in the secular culture it was. They had, no, uh, they had no love or care for Jewish culture. They resisted it. They rejected it. And here is kind of our, um, our clue to that. So they're, they're saying these men are causing problems, and we don't, even, we don't want them to have anything to do with what's going on in this city. We, they're affecting our pocketbooks. Listen, if you're willing to follow Jesus there will be a cost. Now, the good news is, is that Jesus is going to be right there with you, walking with you, helping you, whatever the cost, whatever the price. It happens all around the world. All around the world, every day, people are making decisions about following Christ. I've said this to you before, but it is so important for us to understand as Western believers, that people around the world are being martyred because they believe in Jesus. People lose their lives every single day, about 400 of them every day around the world because they are Christians. That is something we must embrace, understand, we must accept, we must see what's going on around the world and not see Christianity from the perspective of what we want or need here in our 21st century American culture. We have to understand what's going on here. There is a real spiritual dynamic happening here. And if we want to, if we want to let God use us Sometimes we have to change our perspective. Notice what happens here with the Apostle Paul. The crowd joined in the attack. Verse 22, are you with me? This is a pretty cool story, isn't it? This is one of the best stories in the Bible, actually. It says, um, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates offered, or, sorry, ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, why do you suppose they were singing and praying and worshiping at midnight after having been beaten? It's a little bit curious, isn't it? I think it, it. I don't think they were thinking, "Hey, if we worship God, maybe He'll be nice to us and He'll break us out of this place." That's that's not their view of God. They viewed God as a as a uh, a being that was consuming their lives as a as a a person that they had relationship with. There was something meaningful, a depth of relationship with God that caused them to worship him for suffering. They were suffering. We don't like to talk about suffering in American culture. It's not comfortable for us. We, tend, we like to say that when God likes you, he blesses you. 
But actually, in, in the first chapter of Philippians, if you read through there, it says, you're not just called to believe in Jesus, you're also called to suffer for him. It's a curious idea. We're not very comfortable with it, but I think it's so important for us to see this as the backdrop for the book of Philippians. What I want to do is challenge our view of God and what he says and what he does and how he does it. Because we, we don't like suffering. We don't want to suffer. We don't want for things to happen to us that are bad. We want life to be good. We want life to be right. We want everything to be successful and for us to receive blessings. And we want everything to be on track for our lives. God sometimes have a, has a different direction for you. And he knows what you need. He knows what he's trying to accomplish. Think about this for a second. In the story, they were trying to go to Bithynia, but instead God calls them through a vision to Macedonia. It lands them in jail. For most of us, many of us, we would be sitting there saying, I can't believe God did this to you. I can't, I can't believe this is happening. I, can't, I thought Maybe I was wrong. Maybe God didn't call me here. Maybe that vision was bad pizza. This is terrible. I don't think, I, I don't know if I can do this. I, I, I mean, this, maybe God's nowhere to be found. Maybe we totally missed him. Or he's being really mean to us and we've done something terrible. We tend to look at suffering through the grid of either punishment or we missed it. Actually, Paul and Silas are right on track. God is doing something here. And he's birthing a church. He's birthing a group of people, a community. I want you to see what happens here. He says, uh, they were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. All right, now this is confusing to me. Right, it's criminals, right? We're talking about prisoners. They're in jail. They all stay. All the doors open. The earthquake happens. They all stay. The, the, the jailer's about to kill himself because he knows what's coming for him if all these prisoners escape. But we know there's a miracle happening here because the criminals all stayed. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and then immediately he and his family were baptized. That's a pretty cool story. God had a plan and a purpose. He was walking Paul and Silas through a process. They found themselves in the middle of this thing. They'd cast this demon out of this woman, and it, finally, it landed them in jail. People were upset, and then there was a crazy thing that happened. God revealed his plan. He rescued the jailer. His family all came to Christ. And so now you've got Lydia, you've got this woman, and you've got the jailer and all his extended family, and this is the nucleus. This is the little group of people who are starting out to live for Christ, who are going to follow Jesus, who are going to live in a new way 
Their thinking is changed. They've been transformed. They're not just thinking in their old way and old patterns of life. They're thinking in a new way and they're serving God and his love and his mercy through Jesus Christ. This is the backdrop for the book of Philippians. Now go over to Philippians chapter four. You still have your finger there, right? No, you, you've, we've been over here too long. Philippians chapter four. Now, whenever we read scripture and whenever we look through a book like this, we've got to ask this question. Whenever you read the Bible, you need to ask this question. What was the original message to the original recipients? What was Paul actually saying to these people who had been through suffering with him who had partnered somehow in the gospel of building a little church here. What was he saying to them? Why was he saying what he was saying to them? What was their culture like? What what kind of culture did they live in? They lived in a highly secularized culture that didn't appreciate them, that didn't value them, that didn't embrace them. They were counter-cultural. I think when we read the book of Philippians, we can learn from it because we need to be Countercultural. We need to be a blessing to people. We need to serve and love, but there is no guarantee we will always be liked. I don't, I'm not really interested in being a martyr. <laughs> but the truth is, when I give my life to Christ, I've really already settled it. I gave my life to Him, and I'll give my life away. If they kill me for believing in Jesus, so be it. God will take care of my family. Some of you are thinking, that's crazy. Why do you even have to think about that? Because Christians all around the world are thinking about it today. And we need to pray for them, and we need to be in the boat with them. Wow, that got serious really fast. Okay. Didn't plan on saying all that, but here it is, Philippians 4, verse 10. Here's what he says. This is the end of the book. I want to to start here, and then I'm going to look at the whole book through this lens. All right, here it is, verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord. Wait, you remember. Now, I'm... It's not clear where, sorry, it's not clear where Paul's speaking from, whether it's Rome or whether it's Ephesus, whether he's in jail in Rome writing this letter or whether he's in jail in Ephesus. They, they're not sure. But he is in jail. He is in chains. And so he says, I rejoice. Here he is again, sitting in chains. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Key phrase, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. You want to say that with me? I can do everything through him who gives me strength. One more time, say it together. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, I've heard Christians quote that verse for many, many years, but very few of them look back to why he could say it. And what we're going to do is we're going to look back to why he could say he understood the secret of being content. How do, you, how do you understand contentment in the midst of suffering? How do you allow yourself to go through a very difficult season in your life and yet be content with what God is doing in you? 
How do you do that? What does that look like? What are the keys to the secret? How do you discover the secret of that contentment? I think the Apostle Paul writes about the secrets to contentment throughout the book of Philippians. This is a letter that begins with great affection and joy. Turn over to to chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to look at the first key right now. Before I, before I do that, I want to I just talk about contentment for a second. We live in a society where there's a lot of new and improved language. <laughs> we, we always need the next new thing. Technology has created an opportunity for us that's so wonderful. I mean, can you, I mean, most of you are sitting in this room and texting while I'm talking. Or you're, or, you're, or you're Facebooking, or you're doing, or tweeting. I mean, you can be connected to the world like that. Anywhere, any, any way that you need to be. I mean, you can FaceTime, you can Facebook, you can text, you can tweet, you can, I mean, we can be connected. But what that connection does is it allows us to see what we can have. I have an a iPhone 3GS. It's a piece of junk. What an old, washed up piece of equipment it is. The iPhone 5 is about to come out. They're going to try to convince me that the 3GS is so old and outdated, right? And it, and it is. <laughs> that iPhone 5 is looking sweet. <laughs> I, think, I think I need it. <laughs> I need it. <laughs> I want it. <laughs> I'm excited about the release. I'm watching for the, for the release. I think it's October 4th. No, really, it is. I read that in an article this week. Okay. <laughs> now, I've got an, I, ha, I, I got an idea. I had an idea about how technology, how we can harness its power for a new fast food idea. Not that we need any more fast food, but I'm convinced life is getting so full and so busy and so consuming that we're going to figure out a way to create a new fast food joint, and it's going to be called Text-A-Burger. You text what you want. You order by text, and then you pay by your phone, by your, you know, your mobile device, and then you don't even have to stop at the window. They can just, like, throw it out as you're passing by. Here's the thing, what we're, what we're dealing with is we're living in a culture that says you need something new. You cannot be satisfied with what you have. You have to get more and better. You have to have more and better. And I think this is what the Apostle Paul is hitting against as he begins to describe this idea of contentment. Here's one of the things I like to describe as contentment. Contentment is not having what you want. It's wanting what you have and valuing what you have. Let's start reading in the first chapter, and then, we'll, then we'll, I want to highlight for you the first key, and then we'll continue on next week. Verse 1, chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day 
until now. Can you hear the personal dynamic of this letter? This is not a theological treatise book. This is not a, a, a letter that's supposed to be uh, um, sent around to different church groupings. This is a letter to a group of people, a specific group of people in this city, and he loves them because they experienced something amazing together. They went through suffering together. If you have, if you have a friend that you've known for a while and you went through something very difficult and that friend moves away and you kind of lose touch with them and there's distance between you, have you ever had the experience where that friend comes back and, or you talk on the phone and it's like, boom, it's like no distance, no time has passed, you're right back to where you were. There's something beautiful and wonderful about that kind of relationship. That's the kind of relationship that Paul has with these people. That's the way he's looking at them. That's the way he feels about them. And you can see that as he's writing this letter. Now listen, I believe that the church, our church and the church of Jesus Christ should be a group of people that love one another deeply. Our affection for one another needs to grow. This is not a social club. This is not an organization that we belong to so that we can, you know, feel better about ourselves or have some kind of fulfillment in our lives. The, The church, first and foremost, is a community of love. Community of love because Christ showed us how to love. And then he asks us to share that same love with one another. And then he asks us to go beyond that and share that love with the world, with people who don't know him. It is my conviction and my commitment that One Chapel will be a community where people genuinely love each other, where they have affection for one another, where they value each other, and where they embrace one another like the Apostle Paul embraces these folks. So we'll pick it up again in verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray for you with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I want you to underline that scripture right there. That's our first key. The Apostle Paul had a a long view, a big picture view, the big picture view of God's work in his life. One of the reasons he could go through suffering and go through the challenge of being thrown in jail and be content was he knew that God had a bigger perspective. God had a a better perspective of what he was going through than he did. There was trust that God was going to finish the work that he started. He's writing to these Philippian believers, and he's saying, remember when we started? Remember what we went through? He says, I want you to be confident. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began in you will complete it. He'll finish it. This means perspective. The Apostle Paul was helping them gain perspective of what they were really experiencing. We have a problem with perspective. I had the opportunity to sing the national anthem with my two brothers. We, we had this little thing where we do with the national anthem. It was really fun to do. And we got to sing for the Denver Broncos at Invesco Field at Mile High. And we, so, we, so it was so much fun. We got to be on the sidelines. We got our special backstage. It's not backstage. It's uh, back. We got our pass, whatever. And we got to walk around and see all of these players and got to, got to go to the Champions Club the Champions Club. 
I love the Champions Club because it had free food. And I'm not just talking about like little nachos and stuff like that, hot dogs. It had the good stuff. I mean, wings and ribs and as much cheese as you could ever want. It was awesome. It was so much fun. And, uh, and the uh, old uh, former players were walking around in there so you could rub shoulders with them. And then you got primo seats where you could see everything. So we're on the field. We're getting ready to do the national anthem. I'm running onto the field. It's fantastic. These guys are running. It's after the introductions. They're running at me. I can see them coming. And it's, you have no idea how big they are. <laughs> I mean, it was incredible. Their arms are the size of my thigh. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And so I'm walking, and they're getting bigger as they run towards me, and all of the team, and we're supposed to run on, and they're running at me, and I'm like, oh, what are we doing here? And then, I, and then I put my hand up to give them some high fives. High fives, yeah. And, and they start high-fiving me, and so the players are high-fiving me, and then the last guy off the field, I'm like, and he just runs right by. He just leaves me hanging. It's in front of 60,000 people. It's like... Okay, yeah, right. And then, so I, I get down in the middle of the field, we put the microphone down, and then we st stand there, and we sing the national anthem. It's awesome, people go nuts. It's the most people I've ever sang in front of. And so then we went up to the Champions Club, and I got to get all my food, and I went and sat in my seat, and I was amazed at the difference in perspective. I could see every play developing. I could see what was going to happen before it actually happened. I could see the development of the play. You know, that's why they put the coaches up in the box, and they look down, and they have their little microphone, and they talk to the coaches down on the field. They say, oh, this is what's happening. That's why they look at the pictures on the sideline that they take of the field. The perspective is totally different up in the Champions Club than down on the field where everybody looks so uh, intimidating. It's the same for you and me. When we're going through life, we face things that seem intimidating. They're huge. They're difficult. They're a struggle. We don't know exactly what to do. We're trying to make it through it. We, there's a tendency to think that nobody really knows what's going on, that you're just there trying to slug it out and nobody cares and nobody knows. It's not true. God knows. God sees he knows the play is developing. He sees it happening. He's helping you, walking with you, if you'll invite him. You have no idea if the jail you're in, that you'll be busted out. You have no way to know that unless you invite him. Unless you're willing to make him Lord of your life. Unless you're willing to follow him with all your heart. You have no way to know. But he does. He knows, and you can be confident in this one thing, that he who began the work is going to complete it. Paul had a, a, a faith that he who began the work in Philippi was going to complete it in their lives. That out of this little, little uh, experience that they had together, this, this experience of casting this, the demon out of this woman, and Lydia out on the outskirts of town, he saw that God was moving and doing something. Now here's what happens to you and to me. The problem with us is we don't think the position we're in or the location we're in or the difficult situation, the suffering we're experiencing right now, we don't think it'll ever go away. We feel like we're trap trapped or stuck. In fact, one of the devil's most consistent tools is to tell you that you're, there's never going to be another season. There's never going to be anything next. This is it. You're stuck. You're, you're trapped. It's over. See, 
another analogy I just want to leave you with here at the end. The enemy is a photographer. No, no offense to you photographers in the audience. But the devil is a photographer, and you know what he does? He takes a snapshot of your life. And he says, this is you. That's it. You're never going to be any more. Nothing else is going to happen. You're going to be stuck here all the rest of your life. It's a snapshot of where you are now. And he tries to get you to keep looking at that snapshot and think to yourself, this is never going to end. It's never gonna, you're never going to be able to do anything else. This is you. You're stuck. See, God's not like that. God's not a photographer. He's a videographer. He has moving pictures. <laughs> he actually is involved in the story and creating the story, and walking with you in the story. He knows what's coming. Here's the truth. God knows what you are to become. In fact, he's the only one who knows what you can become. Your family, they may think things about you, negative things. You may have a past, a history where it's just awful, and you've been trapped or stuck in some addiction or some practice, some habit. But listen, God knows he can complete the work that he began in you. If you'll just grab a hold of that, if you'll just believe in that, there will be, there's a, there's, a, there's a way that you can be content in whatever situation you're in if you will believe that God is going to finish the work. If he's going to work inside of you and he's not done yet. That the story is not finished. That the video is going to continue to play and it's going to go from scene to scene. In fact, God is a director and he's directing the scenes and he's working with you on what is going to happen. He knows what's going on. And if you trust him, if you'll embrace him, there's just no telling what miracles you'll see. Now, is it still hard? Absolutely. Is it still difficult? For sure. Does suffering have a purpose? Yes, it does. We're going to learn about that next week and the week after. We're going to talk about how this, you know, the book of Philippians has the word rejoy or rejoicing more than 14 times more than any other book in the New Testament. But the backdrop of the book is suffering. The background is Paul writing from the jail cell. The background is how it started and what these suffering Christians have been experiencing. And so I want us to really learn how to be content, how to trust Christ and his work in our lives, how to believe that he sees and knows and is walking with us, all right? Would you just take a moment and bow your heads, close your eyes, I just wanna pray over you. If you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, man, pastor, you just described me. You described my life. I feel stuck, I feel trapped. I feel like, I feel like I'm getting beat up. I'm suffering horrendously. And I don't want my suffering to be useless or pointless. I want God to be involved. I want God to come into my life and make everything I'm experiencing meaningful and purposeful. If you're here this morning and you sense that the Lord is speaking to you, I want you just to take a moment right now and I want all over the, all over the room with your eyes closed. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you forward. I just want you to Say to God, I need you. I need your help. I need to see the video. I need to help. I need your help to know that 
you have a story that goes beyond what I understand. I, I need help to be confident that you're going to finish the work that was started in my heart. Across this auditorium, if you feel like you need Jesus today to say to you, I've got it covered, son. I know the plan, my daughter. I'm with you. And you're in the midst of that kind of difficulty, that kind of suffering. Would you just lift up your hand so I can pray for you? Anybody? Yep. I see you. Yep, just leave your hand there. I'll tell you what, would you just join me in lifting the other hand just in a posture of surrender and let him fill you up. Father, would you fill up these people, every person with their hand raised, every heart that's open to you. Father, would you just pour yourself in? Would you just give them strength? Would you give them life today? Would you help them see that there's more to the story, that the story's not done, the snapshot is not the defining picture for their lives? Father, as they receive you, receive your work, as they give their lives away to you one more time, as they surrender to you in your purpose, in the midst of their suffering, bring comfort and bring peace and bring security, bring confidence. I pray for faith to rise up inside of every one of them. Jesus, would you do a miracle? Do a miracle inside each heart, inside each life, each of us, Lord. We look to you. We call on you. We cry out to you. Say, God, we need you. We need you. We want to follow you. We want to hear your voice. We want you to walk with us on this journey. We'll follow after you, every bit of it. Help us to stay on your heels because you know, you know what's next. You have the right perspective. You know what's coming. So we trust you. We trust you in Jesus' name.